and welcome to World Headlines Weekly, bringing you underreported headlines from around the world. This week, we start with the upcoming elections in Brazil, where far-right incumbent Jair Bolsonaro is trying to fend off a strong challenge from the former president, a metal worker and trade unionist, Luiz Inácio da Silva, or Lula for short. Other candidates are running, including center-left Ciro Gomes and center-right Simone Tibet, but neither are polling above 10%. With just over two weeks until the election, current polls give Lula a healthy lead margin ahead of Bolsonaro, projected to win about 45% of the vote compared to Bolsonaro's 35%. The polls have tightened in recent weeks. Since candidates need at least 50% of the vote to win the Brazilian presidency outright, a runoff between Lula and Bolsonaro is likely. Bolsonaro is running on a platform opposed to same-sex marriage, abortion, and secularism, claiming Brazil needs to return to a more traditional society. On a personal level, he said in the past that he would be, quote, incapable of loving a gay son of his own, end quote, and has endorsed the idea that women should receive lower salaries than men, since women can get pregnant. During his 2018 campaign for the presidency, he suggested that members of Brazil's Workers' Party and leftists in general would be arrested, purged, or murdered if they seriously challenged him in the future. He later remarked that he was joking. Activists, reporters, and other world leaders have also accused Bolsonaro of selling off huge chunks of the Amazon rainforest to private interests, including logging, farming, and energy companies, seizing land that indigenous communities have called home for centuries. Over the past few years, climate scientists have identified Bolsonaro's environmental protection policies as direct contributors to deforestation and habitat loss for endangered species. Meanwhile, Lula is leading a relatively strong campaign with blue-collar workers, teachers, nurses, and students leading the charge. He attempted to run in the 2018 election that Bolsonaro eventually won for himself, but was disqualified just months before Election Day on controversial corruption charges that landed him in prison for nearly two years. In 2019, the Supreme Federal Court of Brazil ruled that Lula was wrongfully imprisoned, the judge that originally sentenced him was biased, and that his conviction record should be nullified, allowing him to run in the 2022 elections. If he wins, Lula will try to lead Brazil in a more socially democratic direction, with stronger workers' rights and environmental protection serving as centerpieces of his campaign. Even then, Lula and his Workers' Party delegates may need to fend off an increasingly violent right wing, with Bolsonaro encouraging his supporters to challenge his opponents using any means necessary. Since his first presidential campaign in 2018, Bolsonaro has incited physical violence against his opponents and claimed false electoral fraud allegations. On September 9th, a Bolsonaro supporter stabbed his Lula-supporting co-worker to death after a heated argument. And then in August, a security camera captured another Bolsonaro supporter invading a child's birthday party and killing his Lula-supporting father. Much of the violence of Bolsonaro and his supporters stems from a nostalgia of Brazil's dictatorship past. From 1964 to 1985, a U.S.-supported military dictatorship ruled the country. Bolsonaro has repeatedly said that the military regime led to a more sustainable and prosperous Brazil, and that ultimately, quote, the error of the dictatorship was that it tortured but did not kill, end quote. The general election is scheduled for October 2nd, 
with a likely runoff election expected but not finalized for October 30th. Next, we head to Pakistan, where flooding has hit nearly a third of the country's territory over the past few weeks, leaving 1,500 dead and tens of millions displaced. The combination of an intense monsoon season and an extreme heat wave that melted glaciers in the north of the country led to Pakistan's major rivers overflowing their banks. The floods have only worsened the country's red-hot inflation and unstable financial situation. Inflation stands at 38%, with most public funds going towards debt repayments and the army instead of desperately needed social services. Flooding has wiped out much of the country's infrastructure, making it difficult for Pakistanis to evacuate flooded areas and for government services to reach people in need. Last week, Pakistan's foreign minister called for international support to help Pakistan recover from the floods. The floods come amid worldwide conversations on climate change's disproportionate impact on countries throughout the global south. Pakistan's 231 million people make up 2.8% of the world's population, but causes just about 1% of worldwide CO2 emissions. Meanwhile, the United States' 331 million people cause about 13.5% of worldwide emissions, not accounting for the global influence that large U.S. corporations have on global trade and worldwide supply chains. On the financial side, Pakistan has been squeezed by high-interest loans from the IMF, China, and Saudi Arabia, with a whopping 85% of the country's financial budget going towards interest and principal payments on debt to rich countries and the IMF. The IMF promised a further $4 billion in loans to Pakistan this year, under the condition that the price for energy and fuel were raised by the government. As a result, fuel prices have risen about 66% over the past few months, worsening millions of Pakistanis' living conditions. Over the next few decades, as the world warms and likely surpasses the Paris Accord's 1.5 degrees Celsius warming target, floods like these will become more common in the river valleys of hot, low-lying countries like Pakistan, Bangladesh, and India. Pakistan isn't the only country that's seen rising gas prices. In Indonesia and Haiti, prices have risen dramatically over the past few months, causing social unrest throughout both nations. Indonesia has experienced nationwide protests after the country's president, Jaka Widodo, slashed oil subsidies. Professional drivers, students, and workers that rely on mopeds and motorcycles for their daily commute have led the protests. A similar situation has developed in Haiti, where the government announced that the price of gas will more than double, from two U.S. dollars to four seventy-eight, to improve the country's financial situation. Since many Haitians depend on fuel for transportation, electricity, and cooking, Protests erupted throughout Haiti's capital, Port-au-Prince. Since the announcement, two journalists reporting on the protests have been killed, and gang violence has dramatically increased throughout the city. Haiti's instability comes one year after President Jovenel Moise was assassinated by a group of masked gunmen recruited by various Colombian and U.S.-based individuals through shell companies. The New York Times revealed that before his death, Moise had initiated a plan to expose wealthy politicians and business people involved in the nation's ongoing political turmoil and increasingly plutocratic government. In Lebanon, banks have announced a three-day closure this week following several incidences of people performing so-called arm withdrawals across the nation. 
Because of the country's dire financial situation, most banks have frozen ordinary people's savings, prompting widespread protests and bank heists to reclaim their own money. Since 2019, the country has grappled with a worsening economic crisis, which, according to the United Nations, has impoverished close to 80% of the country's population. In 2020, a massive explosion in the country's capital of Beirut devastated one of the country's main ports and left about 5% of the country's population homeless. With this deadly combination of factors, a 2021 World Bank report has described Lebanon's economic situation as one of the worst any country has faced in the past 200 years. Like Pakistan, the country has struggled to provide basic social services to its citizens, with 50% of the government's tax revenue going directly towards interest payment on debt. Lastly, we head to the U.S. territory of Guam, where a local nonprofit has demanded that the Guam Environmental Protection Agency halts plans by a U.S. Air Force base on the island to dump spent munitions along the island's northern coastline. Protehila Texan, an indigenous-led group on the island, has sued the Department of Defense and other government agencies over dumping and detonating hazardous munitions along Taragi Beach on the north of the island's Anderson Air Force Base. The group asserts that the U.S. military does not comply with proper disposal procedures and environmental impact analyses of the munitions, while the military claims that the National Environmental Protection Act, which helps regulate munitions disposals, does not fully apply on the island. They also claim that a May 2015 Mariana Islands Environmental Training Impact Statement already took ordnance disposal at the Anderson Air Force Base Range into account. The nonprofit's most recent demand claims that the military has ignored stricter open burn and open detonation regulations passed by the U.S. EPA in June. The current munitions disposal location along Taragi Beach sits directly above the northern Guam Lens Aquifer, the island's primary source of drinking water. A ruling on the Air Force Base's permit is expected within the next few weeks. This comes during a burgeoning scandal in Hawaii over the U.S. Navy's contamination of drinking water on the island, displacing 700 families from their homes and causing severe health problems in some residents who drank the water. A petroleum leak at the Red Hill Bulk Fuel Storage Facility reached the Red Hill Aquifer located 100 feet below the facility, causing nausea, headaches, skin lesions, and other symptoms in affected residents. And those are your stories from around the world. I'll see you next week.